Thank you for joining the Faith Chapel podcast. Wherever you may be joining us, we hope you know you are loved and that this message encourages you. Amen. We have a living hope. And the Bible says this hope does not disappoint us. Amen. I want to begin today by asking you a question. When somebody comes to you and they said they have good news and they have bad news, which do you like to hear first? Let me just ask by a show of hands, how many of you like to hear the good news first? Well, not very many. How many like to hear the bad news first? That's almost, uh, that's a majority if I ever saw one. All right. Well, according to psychology today, we want to hear, we should want to hear the bad news first. Because the good news sets us up for something better. In fact, the good news at the end, it prompts us to, to change. When we receive information, after we've heard the bad news, and then we get the good news, the good news encourages us to change and become a little bit better. And that's what's going on in our story today. It's the bad news first, then the good news. And the bad news is really, really, really gruesome and bad. But it leads to a really good moment, good news moment. And it all started in this most dramatic moment, probably perhaps in the history of humanity, but at least in all the Bible. It's in this experience that we have learned to call the the upper room. It's where they were getting ready to celebrate Jesus and the disciples, the Passover. And the Passover is really just this remembrance meal where Jewish people come together and they have for hundreds and hundreds of years to celebrate the Passover. And we'll talk about just a moment where they were getting ready to leave Egypt. You see, what happened was they were slaves. This small group of people had grown into now a nation of people. And this nation had been, had been in slavery for 400 years. And all of a sudden, Moses shows up and the deliverer of the people, and he says, tomorrow we're leaving. Tomorrow we're getting out of here. They have been praying for 400 years, and finally God answers. Now, I don't know about you, but some of us, we pray for four days, and we're like, God, are you even there? Right? Now, for 400 years, God answers their prayer, and he sends Moses. And after they had prayed, here's Moses. Moses said, listen, tomorrow we're going to get out of here. Tomorrow we're going to leave. We're going to to get out of here. And here's how this is going to work. He gathers them all together. He says, tonight, the angel of death is going to come, and he's going to pass over the land of Egypt. Passover. He's going to pass over the land of Egypt. And he's going to kill every single firstborn male of every single household if they do not have the blood of the lamb upon their doorpost. So they went out and they killed the blood, uh, they killed a lamb, they had this last meal together, and then they put the blood of that lamb on their doorpost, and that night, the angel of death did come and he passed over all the homes, and those homes that did not have the blood of the lamb on them, those children died. And the next morning, Pharaoh, he says, you can go now, you can leave. In fact, not only did they gather all of their possessions, but the Bible says that the Egyptians gathered great wealth and heaped it upon them. And so now they're getting ready to go to the promised land, and they're getting ready to walk out together after they have have celebrated this first Passover. Now we fast forward 1,400 years later, and Jesus is about to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. Now they had done this before, but this time it was different. 
See, there have been many other times that they had celebrated the Passover with Jesus when he was the star, when he was the icon, when he was the one that thousands of people gathered to follow, when there was great momentum in their favor, when he was the hero of the day. There were times where they got together to celebrate the Passover and the disciples were kind of like, we get to be a part of this. Like, this is the greatest thing that's going on. Like, this is the greatest show on earth. Like, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that continue to gather. The crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the miracles get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we get to be a part of this. And there was this season of celebration and rejoicing, not only for what God had done with the Passover, bringing them out of slavery into the promised land, but right there in front of them, they could see with their own eyes the ministry of Jesus. And they're always brought this sense of excitement. But this time, this time it was different. This time there were rumors that were going around that there was a crowd of people that, that were trying to isolate Jesus and get Jesus by himself so they could, they could arrest him and they could accuse him of atrocities of all kinds. The disciples knew that if Jesus went down, that they would go down with him. And Jesus began to talk about death. He talked about being taken. And they sort of filtered all of this out in their thinking because their thinking, much like our thinking, is this. That if you have God with you, then things get better. They don't get worse. That if you really are the Messiah, the one who's come to set up his kingdom here on earth, then things are going to turn around, that things are going to get better. Their thinking, just like our thinking, was just like that, that, that if you really are Jesus, the son of the living God, then before this is all over, then things are definitely going to improve. And why not? Why wouldn't they think that? For three and a half years, they had followed Jesus around, and wherever Jesus went, where there was poverty, poverty, see, where there was people who were needing of healing, there was those that were healed. When there was a, a friend of his, Lazarus, who had been in the tomb literally for four stinking days. Some of you caught it, some of you didn't. Right over the top. And he said, come forth, and he walked out of that tomb, and he brought life into death. Of course, it's going to get better. But they found themselves at a time where things aren't really going that well. In fact, Jesus would normally have sent a couple of disciples on and to prepare themselves for the Passover. He'd say, this is where we're going. This is where we're going to have Passover. You, you two disciples, you go and you prepare the place and we'll catch up with you so we can celebrate it together. But here they were on the afternoon of Passover, the disciples didn't know where they were going to celebrate the Passover. They started wondering among themselves, is this something we're doing this year? Why would we skip this year? Why is this year different? It was eerie. It was strange. There was something completely different around this Passover. And Jesus began to say, it is important for us to go to Jerusalem, and when we get there, really bad things are going to happen. And the disciples, just like you and I would say, then why are we going there? It was like he had this death wish, like he was willing to walk right into the jaws of death. Things were going to be bad when they get to Jerusalem. Follow me, sure, let's go. I'm sure there was some tension in their hearts, there was some tension in their own minds and in their own spirit. Things weren't quite the same. They get to the outreaches of Jerusalem and they stop. And they wait for the sun to set so that they can enter into Jerusalem in the, in the time, in the, under the cloaking of night. 
Jesus sends two disciples ahead and he says, you're gonna meet this man and he's gonna take you to this place. And it was all mysterious. Why a mysterious man? Why a mysterious upper room? Why hadn't Jesus told us about this? And how did Jesus set up the Passover meal without us even knowing about it? And everything seems to be already prearranged and in place. Because this was a time where Jesus wasn't even sure that he could trust those closest to him, his disciples. And as it turned out, he couldn't. He didn't want anyone else to know where they would be because they would be all isolated. They would be vulnerable at this moment. So they sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of night. There's no big celebration. There's no shouting hosannas that they experienced just a few days before. They sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of night. They go into this home and there they are upstairs gathered in this upper room and it is completely silent. It's different, different than ever before. They don't understand really what's going on. If you're Jesus, then things are going to get better, not worse. Why do you keep talking about death? And why do you keep talking about surrender? And why do you keep talking about betrayal? Then in Mark chapter 14, verse 17, he breaks the silence by saying this. When evening came, Jesus arrived to the 12, and while they were reclining at the table, he said this. Truly, I tell you, One of you will betray me. Those closest to him, those that have been gathered into this secret, most vulnerable moment, he says, one of you that's here in this room is going to betray me. The word one punctuates the insult. In this culture that they're in, they, as they eat, at, ate together, they were, they'd be on the floor, the table would be lowered, they would be leaning up against touching one another, sharing in the breaking of bread. It was a very close and very intimate setting. And Jesus is saying in the middle of this intimacy, in the middle of this vulnerability, in the middle of this openness, one of you in this room is going to betray me. And he goes on to say, who eating with me now is the one. Look at verse 19. It says, and they were saddened by the one. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Another version says, is it, is it I? And all the disciples began to look to one another going, is, is, it, is it I? Is, is it I? And like, I don't, I don't know. Is it, well, is it I? Is it, I? Am I going to be the one to betray Jesus? We would never do that. You can almost tell Peter. Peter's like, don't ask me that question. I'm not gonna betray Jesus. I just said a few hours ago that I would die with him. I would surely not betray him, even though before the night is over, he would denounce him three separate times. And then in verse 20, he says, it's one of the 12, he replied, the one who dips the bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Listen to me very carefully. The Bible that's in the P-Rack and frame, the Bible that's on your electronic device, the Bible that you might have carried with you or that you have in your nightstand, or maybe it's all dusty and it's on the shelf of your home. That Bible, the Bible is full of stories and narratives written where people's lives were being lived out during great uncertainty, great peril, darkness, and dilemma. That's how this Bible came to be. And maybe you're facing a time in this room today, and maybe you're here, 
and your life is a little bit uncertain and you don't know where life is headed and you've been thrown a curveball by some situations or maybe some poor decisions and you don't know what's going to happen in your life. Can I tell you, there's no better time than to turn to scripture than right now. There's no better time to turn to scripture than today. We have no idea what's gonna happen politically in our world or even in our own country. We have no idea what's gonna happen financially to our world. We have no idea what's gonna happen to us locally. We have no idea what's gonna happen to our homes and our own communities and our own families. And there's no better place than right now to turn and to find encouragement and strength and help and inspiration like we find in scripture because it was written by people who lived their lives under great peril. This isn't a happily ever after kind of book. It's where everybody just kind of went off and everything was great. No, that's not in the book at all. In fact, what you find is every single narrative, every story, every passage that we draw insight from and we draw strength from, they all came from troubled times. So the lives of the people who have, the lives of the people in this book, the Bible, they've discovered that in the middle of uncertainty, there was a God who was completely and absolutely Certain. And so let me just stop and pause in this message and say, if there's some uncertainty in your life, there is a God who is absolutely, unequivocally certain about what's happening to you right now. And your first initial expression might be, that's not even fair. And I don't know about all of those questions theologically, and I haven't been able to answer all those my whole life. In fact, 2,000 years of of history tells us in the church that no one's really been able to answer all of those questions, and I don't get it. But what I do know is this, that in the middle of all of your uncertainty, there is a God who is absolutely, unbelievably certain. In fact, the big idea for this message, it's on the screen now, but the greater your dilemma, the greater his deliverance. The greater your dilemma, what, the greater your dilemma, and the, the apostles, the disciples found themselves in an incredible dilemma. If you're the son of man, if you're the son of God, if you're the one that's come to set people free, if you're the one that goes and does miracles, then how can it be that this be a dark moment filled with drama and tension? Because things have to get more certain, things have to get better because you're God. Or have we wasted our entire lives? Are you simply a false prophet? Are you simply a false Messiah that has sprung up all over the land for hundreds of years? Have you just tricked us into believing? Are you just someone who's able to do miracles but you can't even save yourself? Are you one of those people because we have given our lives to follow you and we following you, things have to get better, not worse. But the greater the dilemma, the greater his deliverance. If there ever was a time to pick up the Bible and read it is now because you'll find stories like Joseph, not Mary and Joseph, the Joseph teenager in the Old Testament, where his own brothers out of jealousy threw him into a pit. And while he's down there, they hear him saying, should we sell him or should we kill him? Now you thought you had trouble with your brothers and sisters. <laughs> should we sell him or should we kill him? And they're like, I don't know, I think we should sell him. No, let's don't sell him, let's just kill him. No, we can't kill him, he's one of our brothers. Let's just sell him. And in the middle of that story, what do we find? That God was right there in the middle of that. And then there was, there was King David, who the Messiah, Jesus, would come out of his lineage. 
And King David wakes up one day to find that there is an entire army getting ready to besiege the city. And that army is there to conquer him and to take over his throne. And the leader of that army is no other than his son. You thought you had trouble at home with your kids. An army to dethrone his father. But what do we find? And in the middle of all of that, God was right there in the middle of that. And then there was a mother who loved her son so very, very much that even though she lived under a tyrannical, murderous ruler, Pharaoh, who's hell-bent on destroying and killing all of the babies that were, that were born in Egypt because they had grown too populous as a group. She decided to wrap her newborn baby up, place him in a wicker basket and throw him or place him and shove him into the Nile River that's filled with crocodiles as if to say, if I have to take my chance between the crocodiles or the butchers of Pharaoh's army, I'll trust the crocodiles. Moses was brought out and he became the deliverer of an entire nation. God was in the middle of all of that. And then there was another baby who was born. And because of his jealousy, he heard the stories that this baby would be born and he would be the king of the Jews. And he thought that he would overtake his kingdom. And so he did the same thing. He decided that he would murder every Jewish boy. And, all, and even though that happened, the mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, took that baby boy, Jesus, and they went to no other place, believe it or not, but to Egypt. And even though there was wailing and there was weeping in the land, what do we find? God was in the middle of all of that. He was there. In the midst of extraordinary uncertainty, there's a certainty about God in every one of these stories about his plan, his purposes, and what he was trying to accomplish. In the middle of the dilemma, God ultimately would bring the deliverance that was needed. Now look in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. Here's this death talk again. They didn't want to hear that. If you're from God, then things will turn around. If you're from God, then things get better. If you're from God, then things go well. There should be more certainty, not less certainty. There's deliverance that's coming. You can't be talking about this. It can't be like this. In verse 23 and 25, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Then he said, this is the blood of a new covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Then they leave the room and they go out to a garden to pray. And there's so much drama that begins to unfold in that moment. Many of you know the story. But before that begins to happen and in the tension of that moment, Jesus turns to his disciples. In verse 27, he says, and you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And after this, and after I have, and after, but after I have risen, let me stop and say this for a moment. That's the first time they've heard this. He's talked about destroying the temple and rebuilding. He's talked about his death before. But this is the first time he's talked about, I am going to rise again. But after I have risen, 
I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You and I have to answer a question this morning. I think the disciples had to answer the same question. Can you trust God? Can you maintain a trust in God when there is absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? See, your answer to that question will determine your response to continual uncertainty or not in your life. Your answer to that question will determine your response to the continual uncertainty in your life. Can you trust God when there's absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? Can you personally embrace faith in God as your loving heavenly father when there's absolutely no evidence of that activity happening in your life at all? I can just imagine if we were to go to the disciples six, eight, 10, 12 months after the resurrection occurred and we were to go there and we were to say, guys, when were the darkest moments? When were the gravest moments? When were the moments when you had the greatest questions? When were the greatest moments when you thought God had forsaken you, when you thought he had abandoned you, when you thought that everything was going wrong, when you thought everything was happening in it, not the way it should be? When were the darkest moments? I think the disciples would say it all started when we were making our way to that upper room. When Jesus began to talk about death and we got there and it was eerie and it was strange and we didn't understand why there wasn't celebration. It was Passover and he began to talk about his own death and he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He talked about people forsaking him. We thought, no, that would never happen. Why? What is going on? And later that night when we went to, with him to the Garden of Gethsemane and he began to pray and sweat drops of blood began to appear out of his pores. And then we realized something is not right, something is wrong. And then moments later they came and he was betrayed by a kiss from one of our very own and they took him along and we watched as they beat him and we saw the crown of thorns upon his head and we saw him being flogged with a cat of nine tails and eventually led to Calvary and the nails put through his hands and his feet. That's the darkest moments. Out of all the time we were with him, that was the darkest moments. But I believe if we were to go to those same disciples and say, when do you believe were some of the greatest activity of God happening? When did you see, even when you didn't see it, when, looking back on it, do you realize that God was doing his greatest and his deepest work was it, when, was it when he he healed the lame? Was it when he healed the blind? Was it when he fed the 5,000? Was it when he called Lazarus out of the tomb? Was it when he in one of those moments that, that you knew that God was really God, that Jesus was there? Was that the moment, the greatest moment? Those disciples would shake their head and go, no, that's, that's not the greatest moment. What's the greatest moment? Well, the greatest moment would be when we were in the upper room with Jesus and he began to tell us that he was establishing some new covenant, we didn't fully understand it in the moment, but he was about to do something for us and for all of humanity, a new covenant through the shedding of his blood so that as the perfect lamb of God, he would take away the sin of the world. It was in that moment he was doing his greatest work. Church, that's why I'm telling you the greater the dilemma the greater the deliverance. 
And in your darkest moment and in the moment where you don't understand and when you cry out to God, just like they did in Jerusalem or just like they did in Egypt for 400 years and you feel like your prayers are being unanswered and you don't know what's happening next and your life is filled with anxiety and uncertainty, can I tell you there is a God who is certain that there's a God that you can put your trust in, that there is a deliverance that is coming, amen. That's the way our God works. And these disciples, they would tell us that if we would hold on, that if we would not give up, that there is a God who does bring deliverance, that there is a God who is for us, there is a God who is not against us, that there is a God that is always working on our behalf. There is a God who is not, that is not against us, but there is a God that is trying to bring all things and work all things together for the good. For that's what Romans 8.28 says. Some of you know it. As we know, this is Paul. He'd been shipwrecked, left for dead. He'd been flogged. He had been through, you know, naked. He had been without food. And Paul says, for we know. Paul, what do you know? It's not what we hope for. Not what we wish to happen. Not that we hope that something will change. That's not what he said. He said, for this we know. What do we know, Paul? What do we know? For that in all things. Can you say all things? God works for the good. God works for the good. That in all things. And you might, be like those, you might be like the disciples that were there that day, that were confused, that were in the midst of uncertainty, that were questioning whether or not their three and a half years were, were even worth it. You might be questioning God right now in your own life and what's happening in your world. You've lost your job, you've lost your spouse, maybe you've lost a child or a loved one, maybe, maybe some things are happening that are beyond your control and you've been crying out to God, you say, God, this isn't fair and it's not. It's not fair, it's not fair. But can I tell you, the greater the dilemma, the greater his deliverance. For God, for we know. What do we know? For we know that in all things, God works. Listen to me. I'll wrap this up. I'm almost done. I know it's Easter. I know you want to get out of here. You could have said, no, pastor, we want to hear you some more. <laughs> Just keep preaching. We, you know. That's all right, that's all right. How many of you know your first response is the most truthful, but I appreciate that anyway. Appreciate that anyway. What's that word? He, what, he works. In the middle of your uncertainty, he's working. In the middle of your lack of faith, he is working. In the middle of all of your fear, he is working. In the middle of your lack, he is working. In the middle of your turning your back on God, he is still working. In the middle of all that you're facing, he is working. Our God works. He works. And he is working and working and working and working to bring all things together for the, for the goods. For the goods. 
Your greatest day of deliverance is yet to come. Your moment is just around the corner. For every dark moment, there is a Sunday a coming. A resurrection is just around the corner. Your life is about to change and get better. It's about to change for the good because I know that my God turns everything around. He is working everything around for the good to them that, oh, 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 oh. He's working everything together for the good to them that, uh-oh, wait a minute. Now's where I gotta be really real with you. Do you love him? Because see, the calamity that's happening in some of your lives, the uncertainty that's happening in your lives. What you really need is you need God to be working in the background for you. And that verse would be incomplete if we just stopped that he's working. He's working together all things for the good to them that love him. Do you love him? Do you love him? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, for this is the first and the greatest commandment. See, for a resurrection to happen in your own life, for all things to be turned around, for there to be all things working together for good, for your greatest dilemma to be turned into their greatest sense, their greatest moment of deliverance, it takes us being in full relationship with Jesus. Some of you, you've, you've turned your back on God, you know it. Can I just remind you, Peter did. Jesus still came back to him and said, Peter, I love you. Some of you are here and you're wondering, really, is this, is this true? Is this happening? Look, I told you example after example after example in this book. See, the question truly is, can you trust God? Even when you don't see his handiwork, even when you don't see him working, can you trust God? Because the key for your deliverance is when you can hold on to faith till the very end, when you can hold on to faith and you can say, God, I trust you. And I believe that you're working all things together for my good. I love you and I am not gonna stop loving you. Just like Job, God, even though you take everything from me, even though you slay me, yet I will trust you. I am gonna keep believing in you. I am not gonna quit believing you. And the Bible said God gave Job back everything in double portion. I'm not sure he wanted two wives, but he got that anyway, amen. I don't. Take that up with God, amen, I don't know. But he got it all back two times. So what about you? I wanna pray with you before we leave, but what about you? Are, you? are you in this place today? You've turned your back on God, you've lost faith, you've lost hope. You're here because somebody brought you, you're here because mom said, the only thing I want for Easter is my kids to be with me in church. And you're like, okay, mom. And you put on maybe your finest clothes. You hadn't worn them for, well, at least since Christmas. Amen. <laughs> and then you showed up. And, but deep down on the inside, you're struggling with this question. Can I trust God? In the face of adversity, in the middle of trials, in the middle of tribulations, when I don't see his hand at work, can I still trust God? I'm here to remind you today that he's trustworthy. That our God, for I know that he is working all things together for the good 
to them that love him. Why don't we reconnect with him today and say, God, I want you on my team. I want you on my side. I want you to be a part of my life so that you can start believing that your greatest dilemma can be turned into your greatest deliverance. Would you bow your heads all over this building? Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you send the Holy Spirit. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. If you hadn't already, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. If you'd like to further connect with us here at Faith Chapel, visit us online at faithchapelst.com or on any social media platform at Faith Chapel SD. We hope to see you real soon.